All right, brothers and sisters, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the book of Leviticus. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book in the Bible. And this is going to be our last sermon in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I have loved our time in Leviticus. This has been amazing. It's been far better than I could have even imagined. Now, uh, I began this sermon series with a question so many months ago. The question that I asked was, how can sinful man dwell in the presence of a holy and righteous God? And as we've walked chapter by chapter through this amazing book, we've seen God's answer to that question, at least to the old covenant people of Israel. As we've walked through the book of Leviticus, we've learned about the tabernacle and sacrifices and the priesthood and holy days and sexual purity and justice and righteousness and caring for the poor and all that sort of thing. But we're not done yet. As the book of Leviticus comes to a close, the people of Israel are still camped out at the foot of the mountain. They're getting ready to pack up and begin the second leg of their journey to the promised land. But before they go, God has one or two more things to tell them. Like a wise father that God is, he wants his people to know what will happen according to how they conduct themselves when they get to the promised land. So here in chapter 6, God lays out the blessings and the curses for Israel and their obedience or lack of obedience in the promised land. So if you look in the text, verses 1 through 13, in verses 1 through 13, God lays out the blessings for Israel. And then if you look in verses 14 through 39, you'll see that God lays out the curses for Israel. Now, if you're paying attention, you notice that the curses section is a lot longer than the blessing section. Yeah. To be exact, there are 11 promises of blessing for the nation of Israel, and there are 32 promises of a curse. Yikes. It might seem that God is being a little heavy-handed with his people here. Well, maybe. I can see why you would think that. Let me just tell you, as a dad myself, I think that this ratio of promise, curses to blessing makes perfect sense. Think about it when you go to take your kids, parents, into the grocery store or into someone's house that's got a bunch of nice stuff in it that you don't want them to be bad and break. What do you typically say to them? You say something like, hey, listen, don't act a fool when we go in here. And then you might follow that up with, and if you do good, we'll get some ice cream on the way home. But then you might follow that up with, but I'm serious, if you act bad in here, I'm going to tear your butt up, right? The, the ratio there is kind of a two-to-one sort of thing. This is a kindness from God, I think, for him to be heavy-handed in his warnings regarding the curses that his people can expect if they disobey him. He really wants his people to understand. He really wants them to be able to grasp the gravity of the situation, He doesn't want them to pretend to be caught off guard when he curses them for doing the things that he told them not to do and then for them to be like, oh, we didn't know that this was coming. No, I told you explicitly. I told you clearly. I told you abundantly. What would happen if you didn't obey my word, follow my commands? 
And if you want to know what God's commands are, he sort of summarizes them at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. Verses 1 and 2. He says, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. All of that's basically saying don't practice idolatry. Then he says, You shall keep my Sabbaths, which is basically saying you should trust me and rest when I tell you to rest, and you should celebrate all these holy holidays that I've instituted. And then he says, And reverence my sanctuary. That means... You need to do all the things that I said for you to do in order for you to be able to approach me. Practice all the sacrifices properly. This is, in one sense, a sort of summary of the entire book of Leviticus in like two verses, okay? And so God says, if you do this, you'll be blessed when you go into the land. And if you don't do this, you'll be cursed. Let me pray and then we'll dive into the text together. Holy Father, God of heaven and earth, sovereign ruler, you are holy in your person. You are glorious in your being. Please be kind to us, your people here gathered together in your name today. Please, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts and help us comprehend the truth of your word. Let your word dwell in us richly. And let it overflow out of our hearts and into our lives so that we can bring you glory. Amen. All right, note takers, I've got six points for you this morning. Six points. I'm going to run through them once and I'll give them to you again as I go. Point one, context. Point two, blessings. Point three, curses. Point four, repentance. Point five, covenant. And point six, cross. You should know that it's killing me that four of those six begin with a C. I couldn't figure out words that begin with a C for the other two, but here we are. Context, blessings, curses, repentance, covenant, and cross. So point number one, context. Uh, Some Christians believe that we should still be celebrating the Sabbath. Still other Christians think that the American legal system should be patterned after the Old Testament civil law. Still other Christians, perhaps worst of all and weirdest of all, don't think that we should be eating bacon. Now why do so many Christians believe so many weird things like this? Well, the answer is because it's just not always easy to figure out how the Old Testament law applies to our New Testament lives. An example of this would be the prosperity preachers and the way that they handle the text this morning, the way that they misinterpret and misapply this morning's text. The way that they do it creates a sort of mechanistic uh, understanding of God and our relationship with him as his people. So what they'll do is they'll point to the blessings and the curses in Leviticus 26 and they'll say, see, Living the good life doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be super complicated. If you just obey God and do what he says, he's going to bless you and you're going to have a good life. And if you disobey God, he's going to curse you and you're going to have a bad life. And then what they do is they walk that out to its logical ends and you end up with a big mess of false gospel on your hands. 
Now, one of the main ways that you can avoid this kind of mistake with the text this morning is to keep a couple of things in mind whenever you're interpreting text in the Old Testament, but especially this text. The first thing that you need to keep in mind is that this section, this, this promise of blessing and curses is given to the nation of Israel as a whole, not to individuals, right? So all the yous that you have in this chapter, I will bless you in this way and I will curse you in this way. These are not given to individual Jews in the nation of Israel based on their individual actions, right? It's not like one Jew will mess up in one way and receive all these curses, right? This is a promise of blessing and curse given to the entire nation. The nation as a whole, corporately, as it conducts itself, will bring about this sort of consequence on their lives. Uh, Jonathan Smith shared with me yesterday a little thing about living in the South and how we have... uh, our English is terrible, but one of the blessings that we have is we have you, y'all, and all y'all, right? And most of us, when we tend to read the Bible, we read it in the you, and we think it's talking about individuals, but most of the time it's talking about the y'all and the all y'all, okay? Even in the New Testament, most of the stuff happening, that's happening there is not for you, it's for the church, okay? Now, it is true that the nation is composed of individuals, But that doesn't mean that if God were to discipline Israel for her disobedience, that every individual member of the nation of Israel would suffer in the same way. And it also doesn't mean that if God were to bless the nation of Israel for her faithfulness, that every individual member of the nation of Israel would have the same amount of blessings, okay? You have to remember that there is uh, a gradient here, whether we're talking about curses or blessings. Now, another important thing to remember about these promises is that you cannot draw a one-to-one correlation to the nation of Israel and the United States, right? You end up with all kinds of problems if you do that. Uh, The nation of Israel was a theocratic nation-state. So what that means is that their politics and their ethnicity and their religion were all interlocking. They were all connected together. You couldn't separate any part from the other without... Uh, messing everything up, okay? So I'm not saying that God can't or doesn't judge nations, including the United States. I'm not saying that God cannot bless or curse, that he does not bless or curse nations depending on whether or not they are walking in sin and disobedience to his law. Uh, I'm just saying it's a dangerous game to play to try to interpret events in the life of a particular country and draw a one-to-one correlation to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, okay? It's a game better off not played. So point number one, remember the context. This is a promise of blessings and curses given to the nation of Israel, not to the United States, not to you as an individual, and even not to us as a church, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Point number two, blessings. Before we jump into point number two, uh, I need to tell you that we're going to spend more time talking about curses in point number three than blessings in point number two, and that's just because the text spends more time talking about it, okay? So uh, let's talk about the blessings of the covenant. Let's, let's read verses three through 13 together. Let me lead and you can follow along in your Bibles. The Lord says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, Then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last two 
uh, <clears throat> excuse me, shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So, what would you consider the good life to be? Everyone has a slightly different version of it. For some of you, it's the Tim Ferriss four-hour work week. I'm only doing four hours worth a week and everything that I do is exactly what I love. It's perfectly lined up with my passion. That is the good life. For others of us, it might be a perfectly fit body, you know, like Adonis. For others of us, it might be to have enough free time for all of our talents, you know, our hobbies, our, uh, our uh, leisure activities. For others of us still, it might be just to have enough money to not have to worry about bills anymore, right? That would be the good life for you. If you lived in an agrarian society in the ancient Near East a couple thousand years ago, you might look at this promise of blessings and say, well, actually, this is the good life, right? You'll see a bunch of things like plenty of rain, good crops, a rich harvest, protection from your enemies. If there is a war, you're going to win the war. Everyone's going to be safe, fruitful wombs, that sort of thing. Now, let me tell you how I'm tempted to preach this passage. I'm tempted, especially in, in contrast to the prosperity preachers, I'm tempted to preach this passage in such a way that sounds like this. It's generally true that if you just follow God and obey his rules, that you will prosper in this life. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. There is a sense in which, generally speaking, allowing for all kinds of exceptions, that if you follow God and if you obey his law and you walk according to the rules that he has built this world by, that you will experience blessing, prosperity, that your life will go well. But I think if we were to just sort of stop there, if we were to make that the main point of the text, I think we'd be missing something very important. Look at verses 11 and 12 one more time. Starting in verse 11, he says, after God has already enumerated all these blessings, you know, the, 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 the land's going to do this and your wombs are going to do this, he says in verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the summary of all the other promises. This is the, fine, this is the apex, the crescendo promise. All the other promises flow out of this promise. The promise that God will dwell with his people. C.S. Lewis's famous uh, children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
it begins with the land of Narnia completely frozen over. The white witch is in control. There's snow and icicles everywhere. It's just perpetual winter. But about three quarters of the way through the book, something amazing happens. Icicles begin to melt and fall. Snow gives way to grass. Flowers begin to bloom. Trees come back to life. Birds begin to chirp. Bees begin to buzz. This is how Lewis describes it. He says this. Every moment the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of firs or the black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor and overhead you could see a blue sky between the treetops. And then, as if there had been a signal, there was chattering and chirping in every direction. And then a moment of full song. And then within five minutes, the whole wood was ringing with birds music. There was no trace of fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer and the trees came fully alive. Winter was passing away in Narnia. Spring was coming. But why? What changed? The witch had not lifted her curse. So why now? Why was Narnia coming back to life? Well, it's because Aslan was on the move. What C.S. Lewis so powerfully illustrates for us in this story, when you understand that Aslan is meant to be an image of Christ our King, what he illustrates for us is that when God is present in the land, life is present with him. And so here at the foot of the mountain, in the book of Leviticus, as God is preparing to lead his holy people into their holy place, he reminds them that if they walk in obedience to his holy law, that he will dwell with them. And if God is with them, then all of the blessings and the fullness of life that God has created us for will come with God in their midst. Does this remind you of anything? God walking with his people in his place, giving them an abundance of blessings? Something to think about. Point number three, curses. When God called his people Israel, he, he entered into something called a covenant with them. We say often in this church that a covenant is a relationship grounded in a promise. And as you saw from our scripture readings this morning and from the text that we've read so far, the promise of the covenant was this, I will dwell with you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, the word covenant is kind of foreign to us today. We don't really, in the world of contracts, we don't really use the language of covenant anymore, but it shouldn't be that unfamiliar to you. You can think about, for example, marriage. Marriage is a covenant. One man and one woman covenanted together, forming a relationship grounded in a promise for life. Now, in our modern world, covenant most often takes the form of a contract. That's where we have something written down, and as we enter into this relationship, there's a promise, but it's kind of like, I'm a, it's a promise that like, 
uh, if you don't do this, then I'm going to sue you. And if, and if you do do this, then our business relationship is going to go well. But even outside of the business world, there are all kinds of different covenants in contract form. For example, connected to marriage, you have something called a prenuptial agreement, uh, something that flows out of a society that is corrupt with uh, divorce and philandering. Nevertheless, it exists. And a prenuptial agreement is basically an agreement where we say, hey, listen, just in case you are unfaithful to the covenant, uh, let's lay out the curses ahead of time, okay? Let's just make sure, you know, if, if you don't have a prenuptial agreement, the divorcees have to figure out the curses of covenant unfaithfulness on the fly. You know, the wife's like, okay, how am I going to curse you? And the husband's like, how am I going to curse you? Now, in our modern minds, these are separate contracts, right? Prenuptial agreements and marriage. But really, these are both agreements about the same entity, the entity of marriage. And you should know that when God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, there was a promise of curses for covenant unfaithfulness as well. So if you look in verses 18, if, you're like a, if you'd like to mark your Bible up, you can like uh, circle the word discipline here. In verses 18 and 23 and 28, and then there's actually two more, but I'm not going to tell it to you. That's going to be kind of like a fun little word search game for you if you actually go back and look at your notes later. Find the other two places where the word discipline is used, okay? But in this section that I've called the curses section, you actually find the word discipline, 18, 23, 28, and so on, okay? Uh, what, we, what you see in these verses, in this section in Leviticus that's all about discipline, is you see a sort of escalation of force that God lays out for his people, okay? Now, if you're not familiar with an escalation of force, let me, let me tell you about my time in the military, before we deployed to Iraq, uh, all soldiers have to uh, go through a time of training to make sure that you don't shoot somebody that you're not supposed to shoot. This is escalation of force training. So a uh, typical escalation of force when you're deployed might look something like this. If an enemy combatant is walking towards you, uh, you shout for them to stop. And then if they don't stop, you move on to the next step, which is where you raise your weapon. And then if they don't stop, you fire into the air, fire at their feet, okay? And all of this is trying to prevent something terrible from happening. It's trying to prevent them from, you know, suffering unnecessarily. I'm trying to give you every chance in the world to prevent something bad from happening. And then if they still don't listen to that, that's when you open up fire on the enemy combatant, okay? That's the last and final and fatal step. I think that's a pretty good picture of what God is doing here with his people as he promises uh, discipline to them in the promised land if they don't walk according to his law. He says, listen, if you don't obey me, here's how I'm going to discipline you. And listen, I'm doing that to try to get your attention, to try to wake you up, to kill your pride, to bring you back to me. But if you don't listen, then I'm going to turn the heat up and we're going to take it up another level. And then if you don't listen to that, we're going to take it up another level and another level. So let's just walk through these verses. Look at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then he lists all the things that he's going to do. Now you can go down to verse 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Now go down to verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold. You see this? Sevenfold, sevenfold, sevenfold. 
23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And then he describes what all that's going to be. And then if you go to verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And if that word seems too strong to you, uh, coming from God, you just probably don't have kids, okay? Uh, in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins, okay? Now, the point that I'm really trying to drive home to you here is that God is not punishing his people merely to see them suffer. That's called malice. That's just, that's, that, that would be the that would be the bare-bones punishment of a petty and puny deity, a God that we've created in our own image. But that's not what the God of the Bible is like. For the God of the Bible, discipline is something that flows out of his love that he has for his people as their father. So God is not having them suffer just for mere suffering's sake. It's intended to bring about a change. Remember, God wants to dwell with his people. He didn't call his people out of slavery, redeem them, make them his own, just so that he could turn around and, you know, uh, have a good time punishing them all the time. He wants to dwell with them. He wants all to go well with them. And sometimes that involves discipline. And sometimes that discipline has to be multi-layered, right? Parents, you understand this escalation of discipline quite well. If your children are being disobedient to you, you don't just ship them off to boarding school the first time they backtalk you. You know, that's strike one, you're out, you know. And if your children are, you know, being naive or they don't understand the situation, you don't just go to level 10, right? It usually starts off with something like a verbal warning. Hey, you better take that bass out of your voice, huh? You better check, you better watch yourself, right? And then there's an escalation of discipline from there. And depending on the age of your children and the disposition of your children and your personal parenting philosophy, Uh, that may look different. But I think in general, it probably goes something like this. Verbal warning, and then maybe like a time out or a go to your room. I didn't have a normal childhood, so I'm imagining what normal people do in normal families. Okay, then after that, a spanking. And then after that, removal of additional privileges. Okay? And then after that, murder. (laughs) Right? And then after that, taking away their cell phone. That's level 10. But none of these acts of discipline is designed to merely inflict suffering on the child, right? Of course not. Parents, you don't want to live in constant war with your children. You don't enjoy punishing your children. The goal is to break their pride and to lead them to obedience, preferably heartfelt obedience. But sometimes you just got to settle for obedience. Look at verse 19. You can see the same language. God says, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. It seems like, according to God, if the Israelites aren't obeying God, the the root of the issue is pride. They think that they know better than God. They think that they understand what's best and that God doesn't. And so God disciplines his people to to show them, no, actually, you don't know what's best. Now, this fits the paradigm, again, that most parents are familiar with in their home. Uh, Good parents never implement an increasingly severe form of discipline when their children 
uh, have just made an honest mistake. It's usually when you see in your child a pattern of willful rebellion. It's when the child's actions and will are very clearly and obviously opposed to your will as a parent. And it's also usually when the initial efforts, the gentle efforts, the loving efforts, the, oh, hey, baby, please don't do that efforts fail that you have to ratchet things up. All right, kids, where are you at, kids? If you are here and you are under the age of 18, look up, stop dramatics. I'm I'm talking to you, girl. I'm talking to you right now. Bella, patience, I'm talking to you. I need all the kids. Micah, I know you're almost an adult, but you can still listen. All right, all the kids listening? I know that your mom and dad aren't perfect, okay? And I know that when your mom and dad discipline you, they don't discipline you perfectly, okay? Your mom and dad aren't always right. I know that. But the vast majority of the time that your parents are disciplining you, it's because they love you and they're doing it for good and right reasons and they're doing it the right way and it's probably because you are being prideful. You're rebelling. You're sinning against them. And the reason why they have to ratchet it up and and, and make things harder and harder on you is because you're not listening to them when they're trying to talk to you and be gentle with you and kind with you. And they have to ratchet it up to break break your pride. Now, I know. I was a kid once. Patience, sit up when I'm talking to you. I know. I was a kid once. It's not fun to be disciplined. I'm not saying that it's fun. I'm just saying that trust me as your pastor. They're doing it because they love you. I know, Bella, that it seems like whenever your mom and dad feed you or buy clothes for you or take you to Chuck E. Cheese or some other fun thing, that it seems like that, that they're showing you that's what God is like, right? But that when they discipline you, they're being mean. Maybe they're even being more like Satan. But let me tell you, the exact opposite is true. You see, Satan doesn't want to discipline you. He wants you to grow comfortable in your sin so that one day you're caught off guard when God's final judgment comes. Right? Your parents, believe it or not, they know a lot about this world. And they know that if they don't make some corrections for you right here, right now, that later on in life, you're going to suffer a lot more. Well, the same thing is true about God, kids. God loves us so much that he's willing to cause us a little bit of pain He's willing to correct us and cause a little bit of pain right here, right now, and discipline us because he knows that if he doesn't do that, then things are going to be a lot worse for us later. So whether it's your mom and dad who are disciplining you or it's God who's disciplining you, remember, discipline, even if it's imperfect, is still a sign of love. It's a sign of love from your mom and dad and it's a sign of love from your Father in heaven. Okay? Okay. Hey, you guys did so good paying attention. Thank you. All right, now back, back to the... Did you guys fall asleep while I was doing that, talking to the kids? No? Okay, back to, back to the adults. Kids, you can go back to paying attention. If blessings are the result of God's presence amongst his people, then it makes sense that all the curses are the result of God having his presence diminished amongst his people. When you think about God's presence among his people, you might be tempted to think about it like an on-off switch. Kind of like God's either present or he's not, you know? Like Michael Wall's either in this room or he's not in this room. And that's not really the best way to think about it, I don't think. I think scripture kind of talks about God's presence a little differently than that. 
Uh, instead of a light switch, you might want to think with on and off, you might want to think about more like a dimmer switch, okay? The light bulb's there, it's in the ceiling. The light can be on, but it can be on and very bright or it can be on and be very dim. You see this all over the Bible. One place in particular, that, in particular that you see it is the New Testament. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he tells uh, his Christian uh, disciples there not to be drunk with wine, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. Right? So Paul seems to think that if you're being drunk, if you're sinning, there's some, there's some measure of your sin that reduces the, the amount of God's presence in your life. But if you don't do that, then God is able to be present with you in a more abundant way. Okay? Now, I don't think what Paul intends to say here is that if you're a Christian and you get drunk, the Holy Spirit leaves your body. Okay, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think he's talking about the efficacy of the power of the Spirit. I think he's talking about our awareness of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. So uh, married people, for example, you have experienced this almost certainly if you've been married for like longer than a day. If you're fighting with your spouse, right, you don't stop being married to them. You're not, it's not like you're not in their relationship, but you don't necessarily feel the presence of your spouse in the same way, right? If you're not making time to commune with your spouse, to renew your covenant with your spouse, to build a healthy relationship with your spouse, if you're just kind of getting up in the morning and going to work and coming home and getting on the TV and then going to sleep and then waking up and doing the same thing all over again, you're still in that relationship. Your, your spouse may still be present, but you don't you don't really grasp their presence. You don't really feel their presence. Their presence isn't really efficacious in your life in the same way that it is when you are meaningfully and purposefully pursuing them in love. When work gets in the way and sin gets in the way and sleep gets in the way, you tend to feel less of their presence. When God's people sin, God does not simply abandon them. He doesn't just evacuate his presence. But... The sin of his people may mean that the fullness of his presence is not felt, is not known. And less of God's presence means more bad things, more suffering, more sorrow, more death. Crops fail, the harvest will be weak, battles will be lost. Uh, Less spring, more winter. But that can change at any moment which leads us to point number four, repentance. What you see here is that with each escalation of discipline, God tells his people that it can all end. It can all come to a grinding halt. Look at verse 40. He says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, Sorry, a quick comment about that iniquity of their fathers. I think one thing that's important to see here is that God's hand of discipline, there's a sort of cumulative effect. It's not like one generation kind of gets a little bit of wrong and then God sort of cranks down on everything, right? There's this, the, this generation sins and they pass that sin on to the next generation and then that sin, they get comfortable and then they ratchet it up another level and another level. And so as each generation of the Israelites grow in their sin, God also grows in his response to that sin. Okay, but in verse 40, again, we see, 
if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also walking contrary to me. Now, he says this is kind of a little bit of a run-on sentence. Go down to verse 44. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, that is, if they repent. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. What God says is, listen, yes, I will discipline you. I will try to bring you back to me. And if you don't like it, it's easy to make it stop. All you have to do is turn away from it. Idolatry, sexual immoral, sexual immorality, injustice, whatever it is, that, whatever sin that has become abundant in the land, you can put an end to this if you just turn back to me. Now, at first glance, it may seem like everything that we're talking about this morning is just super unique to the old covenant people of Israel, right? You're like, well, Sean, we don't have these blessings and curses promised to us in the new covenant, so what does this even mean for me? Well, I'm going to tell you that actually the same paradigm, the same kind of thing is actually prevalent in the New Testament as well. So, for example, you have the, 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 the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. Uh, listen to the way that he talks to the church at Ephesus, who in some ways is doing good, but in other ways they have some issues. He says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, you remember from a few weeks ago that a lampstand is the symbol of God's presence among his people. So do you see the same kind of paradigm? Here you have God's covenant people who are in sin in some kind of way, and God is coming to them and telling them to stop sinning, and that's very much connected to his presence among them. Same kind of thing. Do you see how relevant this is for us as a church? You see the same kind of thing from a different angle in matters of church discipline. Right? In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if somebody's in sin, you go to them one-on-one. That's the first level of use of force. And then if they repent, great. You don't go any further. It, it comes to a grinding halt. But if they don't listen, well, then you go and you get two or three and you go back to them. That's the next step in the escalation of discipline. Well, if they don't listen to them, then you take it to the church. But if they do listen, great. You stop right there. It doesn't have to go any further. One-on-one, two-on-one, take it before the whole church, excommunication, escalation of force. And then what happens in matters of church discipline when somebody won't repent? Well, the final level is they're put out of the church. They're removed from the presence of God and his people. Remember, the church is like an outpost of heaven. So to put someone out of the church and into the world is to put them into the the realm of Satan and out of the realm of Jesus. You're removing them from the presence. It's all the same kind of thing. Friends, we experience so much suffering in this world that we have no control over. You know, you get a bad infection, you get sick. Maybe there's going to be medicine that'll help, maybe not, you know. A fire comes, a tornado comes, a friend dies in a car accident. There's just all, people sin against you and there's no way that you can stop it. There's so much suffering in this world that you have no control over. But one of the main ways that we suffer as a result of our sin is something that we have complete control over. We can put a stop to it if we just repent and turn to God and humble ourselves before him. I don't know 
every detail of everyone's life in this room this morning. I know that we're all suffering in some way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're suffering for righteousness' sake. Well, if that's, if that's the case, brother, sister, friend, uh, keep going. The Lord is with you. you know, if you're here suffering uh, just because of God's strange providence, like Job, you didn't do anything to deserve it, God's not angry with you, it's just sort of happening in a weird way, trust the Lord, he's infinitely good. But if you are here this morning and you are suffering because you are under God's hand of discipline in your life, because of your pride, because you just won't let go of that sin, you have the choice right here, right now, to stop that suffering. If you're here and you're a Christian, you can come out from under God's hand of discipline. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I don't know that I would say that God is disciplining you, but I would definitely say that suffering is meant to wake you up. It's supposed to tell you something about eternity and what you can expect in the coming days. It's kind of a shadow of the suffering that will come if you haven't trusted in Christ. But even you, I don't, know, I don't care who you are or what you've done, you can come out from under that suffering right now if you will just trust in Jesus, if you will repent and turn back to him. So let me summarize point number four like this. If sin damages our covenant relationship with God, then repentance is what we do to fix that. But I have to be careful here because if I say that, you might think that like, okay, then it's on me to fix all of my relationship with God. And that is a heck of a burden to bear. And that's actually not really what grace is. So praise God that actually there's uh, another layer to this, which leads me to point five, covenant. Uh, You'll notice in this text, the word abhor is used several times. The word abhor means something like feelings of extreme disgust or hatred. In verse 11, God says that his presence amongst the Israelites is evidence that he does not abhor them. In verse 15, you see that God describes Israel's disobedience as an abhorrence of his law. Look there. Verse 15. He says, If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules. Right? So there's a heart issue here. Whatever your disobedience is, it's connected to something about the way you feel about my rule over you. And then in verse 30, God says, Fine then, if you're going to abhor my rules, then I will abhor you. Look at verse 30. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. Uh, One of the things that we often say about love when we're talking about it from a biblical perspective is that it has to be more than an experience. It has to be more than an emotion that you feel. It has to be an action. It has to be a commitment. That's why the words covenant and love are so often connected together in Scripture or used interchangeably in Scripture. So God's love for his people is not just a feeling that he has for them. It has to be more than that because they often give God a reason to not feel love for them. God's people often sin against him and they abhor him and they give God a reason to feel abhorrent feelings towards them. 
feelings of extreme disgust. And yet God does not abandon them. He doesn't give up on his people. Look at verses 44 and 45 again. He says, yet for all that, now, and all that in those two words, you can just, all of Israel's sin and rebellion and pride and everything that would make God furious with them. Okay? Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. You see, this is God saying, I have a covenant love for you. The people of Israel don't deserve to be forgiven. They deserve to die. They deserve to be destroyed, but God says, ultimately, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I have a covenant love for you. A love that's grounded in a promise, not in a feeling at any particular moment. This understanding of love is one of the most practical doctrines that you can have for your life in the various relationships that you have with other sinners this side of heaven. I know that this morning, single people, I love you, and I'm going to do more to talk about you in future sermons. But this morning, we're just going to be talking a lot about married people and families. So let me go back to another marriage illustration. Husbands and wives, I know that if you've been married for longer than a day, and maybe even if you've just been married for a day, maybe you had a massive blow up on your honeymoon. If you have been married for longer than a day, you know what it's like to not feel like you love your spouse. Maybe they're just sitting there at the breakfast table and the way they're chewing that Raisin Bran Crunch makes you hate them with a the fire of a thousand dying suns, you know? Or maybe something really terrible happened in your marriage and your spouse is just being really unkind and unloving and perhaps even abusive. And you just don't feel like you love them. As a matter of fact, there are times where Maybe what you feel for them is the opposite of love. Maybe you might say that you abhor them. You have a feeling of extreme disgust towards your spouse. This is, this is real life, guys. We're not here to put you know, a smile on our face and pretend like everything's always okay all the time. Okay, that's what the hypocrites did. This is real life. This is what happens in marriage sometimes. Now, in that moment or for those days, or for those weeks, or for those months, or for those years, if you stay committed, if you stay in that marriage and you don't give up on it, why are you staying in that marriage? Now, for some of us, the answer may be, well, if I leave him, I just won't have any money. Or if I leave her, who's going to blah, blah, blah. Or it'll look bad for us in the public eye. But if you're a Christian, the vast majority of the time that you stay in a marriage, even when you don't feel love for that person, is because you have made a covenant with God and with them to love them even when you don't feel your love for them. Even when they are acting unloving towards you, even when everything that they're doing towards you gives you every reason to give up on the relationship, you stay in it because you made a promise and you weather the storm. The same kind of thing happens in this local church. Guys, we are a bunch of misfits. Am I allowed to say screw-ups from the pulpit? Okay, somebody tell me afterwards if I just did an oopsie-daisy. But that's what we are. 
We're sinners. And we are going to sin against each other. It's bound to happen, I promise you. And if it hasn't happened yet, just give it a couple of weeks, a couple of days maybe. People in this church are going to sin against you. And you may not feel like you want to come back here. You may not feel like you want to be in the same room with some of these people. But friends, when you join the church, you are entering into a covenant, not the same kind of covenant as marriage. You are certainly welcome to leave this church and find a better church. But you shouldn't do so lightly because you know what's going to happen when you go to that other church? You're just going to find other sinners who are going to sin against you again. So when you're a member of this church, you're committed to loving one another even when you don't feel loved and even when you don't feel love for one another. Because ultimately, we're committed to Jesus. That means we're going to figure it out as we go. Now, for the nation of Israel, this understanding of love is the best news in the world for them. Friends, if if Israel had to depend on their ability to obey God's law and or repent when they broke God's law in order to be in right relationship with God, they would never be in right relationship with God. If it was dependent upon Israel to obey God in order to be blessed by God, they would never know anything other than God's curses. But the good news for the Israelites is that God's love for them is not grounded ultimately in their obedience or their repentance, but in his unchanging covenantal love. That leads me to point number six, the cross. (coughs) Uh, seismologists are those guys (coughs) and gals (coughs) excuse me who study earthquakes and uh, they tell us that before every earthquake there is something called a foreshock a foreshock is a tiny earthquake or even maybe a series of tiny earthquakes that precedes the main shock or the, the big earthquake now the same kind of thing happens with curses and blessings in the Bible. There are all these little mini events that happen before the main event. There are all these little mini blessings and mini curses that precede the ultimate day of blessings and curses, which is the Lord's day, the final day of judgment, the day when God comes back for his reckoning. Daniel describes that day like this. He says, And many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, blessings, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. The final curse. Now these blessings and curses that await the nation of Israel in the promised land, they're just a foretaste, a hint, a shadow, a foreshock of the main blessing and curse that awaits all human beings on judgment day. Romans chapter 2 verse 6 is very clear on how this day will work. I'm just going to read to you one sentence. It says, God will judge each man according to his deeds. That's how that day is going to look when God's like, okay, do you get a blessing or a curse? It's judged based on your deeds. That's going to happen for all of us. I don't care how young and vibrant and youthful you feel right now, how invincible you seem to the world, the day is going to come, I promise you, I bet my life on it, that you're going to close your eyes and you're not going to open them again. 
And then when you come to some form of consciousness, you will be standing before a holy and righteous God. And he will render a judgment on your soul based on your deeds. Now here is the most important question that you could ever ask. On that day, will I be able to stand before a holy and righteous God? And if you think the answer is yes, that I have lived a good enough life, that I have done enough good things, and I have not done enough bad things, that I can stand before him and withstand his judgment, friends, you are ignorant. You are deceived. You are confused. You are just flat out wrong. From the first moment that you sinned, you disqualified yourself before a holy and righteous God. Because of your continued sin, you, me, everyone in this room, every person on this earth deserves nothing but God's final curse. And that is very bad news. So what then is our hope? Well, friends, it's Jesus. You see, God did not leave it to us to figure out how we could stand before his holy presence. He sent his son, his only son, his perfect son, to live on this earth as a human. And Christ came and he lived a perfectly righteous life. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He perfectly walked according to God's commandments. He did not abhor anything about God. He loved everything about the Father, and he obeyed him perfectly. And that means that he should deserve all the blessings, all the favor of God. But he did not receive that. Instead, he went to the cross. And on the cross, he took the curse that we deserve on his own head. That's what we deserve. But he took it. And the good news of the gospel is that he took the curse of your disobedience and he offers you the blessings of his obedience. And the only thing you need to do to receive that is to just trust in him, to receive him. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money. You don't have to join the right social circles. You don't have to do any number of different things to enter into that blessing. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord, I will turn away from my sin and I will turn towards your son, Jesus, and I will receive all the blessings that you have for me in him. As you follow the rest of the story of the Old Testament, you'll see that God's people fail over and over again and they walk through this escalation of discipline Ultimately, the nation of Israel and the north is destroyed. Judah is sent off to exile in Babylon. But God is kind and he restores them. He brings them back. He'll do the same thing for us, brothers and sisters. There's just no way we're not going to disobey God's law. The reality is, is that we're sinners and sinners are going to sin. And as we try to follow Jesus, we are going to mess up. And God is going to discipline us. But his Holy Spirit is living in us. Always leading us back to him. Always moving us towards repentance. Always increasing our faith. And he's put us in a church. And in this local church, we can see. See things that we couldn't otherwise see. We have all kinds of blind spots. But the Holy Spirit puts 
Cody and Dom and Tim and Katie and Amber and Olivia all in the same church so that we can help each other get to heaven, so that we can help each other come out from under the discipline of God and receive all the fullness of the blessings that he has for us in Christ Jesus. So let's make sure that we take full advantage of that. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's often hard, but it's always good. You challenge us. You shape us. You mold us. And ultimately, Lord, you have made us new. So we pray that you'll help us as we go back out into the world to live out this newness of life. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together.